May 10th. Thank God for the rain, which has helped wash away the garbage and the trash off the sidewalks. I'm working long hours now, six days a week, sometimes seven days a week. It's a long hustle, but it keeps me real busy. I can take in three, 350 a week, sometimes even more when I do it off the meter. All the animals come out at night. Buggers, queens, fairies, dopers, junkies. Sick, venal. Someday a real rain will come and wash all this scum off the streets. I go all over. I take people to the Bronx, Brooklyn. I take them to Harlem. I don't care. Don't make no difference to me. It does to some. Some won't even take spooks. Don't make no difference to me. Each night when I return the cab to the garage, I have to clean the back seat. Some nights I clean off the blood. Twelve hours of work and I still can't sleep. Damn. Days go on and on. They don't end. All my life needed was a sense of some place to go. I don't believe that one should devote his life to morbid self-attention. I believe that someone should become a person like other people. Welcome back to the Film 89 podcast. I'm Sky, and joining me tonight is my fellow Film 89 compatriot, Mr. Stephen Amos. Hello. We're not going to be lonely tonight, are we? God's lonely men. <laughs> yeah, the last time you and I were on together was for episode 60, where we gave our listeners a double bill of Martin Scorsese goodness with our Goodfellas and Casino episode. And for that episode, we were joined by fellow countryman and writer for Film 89, Mr. Leighton Winston, and filmmaker and hardcore cinephile all the way from Los Angeles, Mr. Kyle Reardon. And guess what? They're both supposed to be back. Unfortunately, one of them seems to have stood us up. We can't get hold of Kyle. Uh, we hope he's okay. Uh, he's possibly maybe got his times uh, mixed up, uh, which is easily done when he lives uh, thousands of miles away from us. But fortunately, Leighton is with us. Leighton, how are you doing? Very good, Sky. Very good. As you're back, Leighton, obviously last time we talked about Martin Scorsese, and this time we're going to be talking about another Scorsese film, one that has been at the top of my own personal list of films to tackle on the podcast for a long time, and that film is, of course, Scorsese's 1976 masterpiece starring Robert De Niro, taxi driver gents take us through or take our listeners through how each of you first discovered taxi driver and your relationship with the film okay when i was a teenager one of my friends who was a gang of us who used to hang around together and one of them his father his favorite film was taxi driver and i have to admit when i first heard of that i I didn't know what the film was and i didn't have high hopes because he was called taxi driver what can that be? It doesn't really tell you what the film is going to be about. Yeah. His father used to tell us about how much he loved it and he loved the ending. It was, he said that, uh, you know, it was raw, it was real, it was beautiful. It was, you know, he, was, he used to talk about all these things about it. Uh, I was only about, I don't know, 14, 15 years old when I first saw it. It blew me away. You know how you are when you, you know, you're a teenager and, you know, the world is on your shoulders every single day. It's striking because at the time there was so much in the film that I thought, oh, yeah, yeah, that this is, you know, I can see this, I can see that in my life, blah, blah. As I've grown older and I've grown wiser, I can see that I was just a, you know, snotty-nosed imp and I shouldn't have seen, you know, the film has changed for me. And yet it hasn't, the brilliance hasn't changed. 
I've grown up and I can see that we'll talk about it as we go along. This character, Travis Bickle, wonderful character study, not a wonderful person. But, you know, it's a film which has been with me for, what's that now, 35 years. As I said, it's, it's changed as I've changed and I've grown older. Yeah, for me personally, it stemmed after Goodfellas. Round about the time I saw Goodfellas the first time, and as I alluded to previously, I sort of did a massive rewatch. Well, not rewatch, but discovery of these older films. Taxi Driver is one of those films that was always sort of there in the background, shall we say. One of those films that sort of had its own legend. I think it was either Channel 4 or BBC 2 in the UK. Did a season of, of, of a bunch of um, Scorsese films, and I recorded them. And I'd never seen Taxi Driver, although I, I'd heard about it. And I I watched it and I was just like, wow. It was so so unique and the film is still so unique in its story, you know, and this this and this remarkable, remarkable character. Yeah, and it was one of those ones that you'd be saying to your mates, have you seen Taxi Driver? And it's like, oh, is that a film, you know, these it again in the background, you know, the film that had this little bit of a legend behind it. It's all it's one of those ones that's always been there in my personal collection. Did you have it on VHS originally? Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I've got this theory, right? And um, Sky, when you there's certain films which you can watch on VHS, and you know the pictures not all that great, but the griminess of the film, the dirtiness of the streets and everything, even on VHS, it picks up and maybe even adds to it. You know, films like the, the French Connection is another one. Yeah, you know, it's like it was almost made for VHS as well as for um, you know. DVD and Blu-ray. Yeah, I think certain films, yeah, certainly a French Connection and, and Taxi Driver films, which are, you know, that grimy, sort of grainy, washed out kind of look, which is intentional. You know, they, they, they definitely handle the inadequacies of, of being watched on VHS a lot better than certainly films like, you know, a shiny cinemascope film like Terminator 2 or, or, or certainly something like Lawrence of Arabia, which obviously needs to be seen on as big and, and as clear a picture as possible. But yeah, you, you mentioned Leighton that Goodfellas was kind of like your gateway drug to Scorsese. And as I said on, on our previous Scorsese episode, it, it was for me as well. And then that caused me to seek out every one of his films. And I think probably for me, given the fact that you know this was probably early 90s when I first saw Goodfellas and then can't recall what the next one was but I know that within about two or three Scorsese films I, I, I bought Taxi Driver on VHS without even seeing it and that was the first time I saw it but yeah oh you go Steve funny enough it was on VHS no I couldn't even tell you what impact the film had on me on my first viewing I for whatever reason I just can't recall certain films when you watch them the first time their effect on you just stays with you but I certainly know The Taxi Driver was one of about five Scorsese films which certainly in the mid to late 90s this is after the release of Casino because this is one of those five films so Casino, Goodfellas, Raging Bull, Mean Streets, and Taxi Driver. In fact, you can add a sixth one. I think you can add the King of Comedy to that. Were six Scorsese films that I literally watched on repeat, probably once a week for a period of maybe a year to a year and a half. I just went. On, I, I just couldn't stop watching this particular set of films. Taxi Driver, obviously, being one of them. The more I watched it, the more I, I, I got out of the film. You know, I've owned it on VHS. I've owned it on DVD, and now we're only on Blu-ray. Like I said, it's genuinely of all the films we've covered so far on film 89 this and jaws and i think you can add the empire strikes back into that as well have been just the films that i've most been excited about talking about it's just every time i hear that bernard herman score it just brings rushing back everything for me that is just magical about this film when i say magical i don't necessarily mean in like an enchanting sort of 
wow, you know, what an amazing, beautiful, uplifting story this is, because it's completely the opposite. This is probably one of the most grimy, dirty, disturbing, in-your-face kind of films that came out of the 1970s. Sky, do you know, thinking about it now, what you're saying, reflecting back from when I first saw Taxi Driver, I don't think I fully understood it. Yeah, I, I, prob- I probably didn't. That's, that's probably why I can't... Because if I watched a film and I didn't really get it, but I think to myself, ah, oh, but it's Taxi Driver, everyone goes on about it. There's probably a chance that I kind of buried my initial opinion of that film just to sort of save face with maybe other people who were saying, oh, you've got to see Taxi Driver, it's this, it's that, whatever. So yeah, I probably maybe didn't fully appreciate it, maybe until my, at least my second, third, maybe fourth viewing. Yeah, and I, I think because we, we're a little bit more educated in understanding um, certainly uh, PTSD and, and you know uh, the effect that war and loneliness can have on people, that now we understand it probably better than we've ever understood the film. Yeah. But I didn't, that initial reaction was still wow. But 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 why is he that way? Why is he this? Why is he that? That is answered much more now, mm. in as much that we are better educated, we understand things more, and there's more education out there about these things. But no, I I, I do think the first time, certainly, I probably would have thought, why 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 did it end like that? Why why did he, why did he behave the way he did? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's what, um, you know, when I first saw it, I felt at the time I understood it. I think that looking back at, on it now, I didn't understand it. But for me, I felt like I did take something out of it. But I, I do believe I was wrong. Yeah. Do you know, this is probably something that maybe would more naturally fit the later part of this conversation about the film, but I think it's relevant now. Given the fact then, guys, we've all recently rewatched this, and I know for a fact that I haven't seen Taxi Driver for a good few years. Maybe not as long as a decade, but it's certainly a, a long while since I've watched this film. It's one of those films I've seen so many times. I, But this is the first time I've gone back in a long time to watch it. And I've got to say, there's things in this film which have resonated differently with me now than they did certainly when I was in my early 20s when I was going through this sort of perpetual Scorsese binge and there's things in particular quite obviously about Travis's character that really stand out now which before you know I kind of saw Travis as this kind of lonely downtrodden war veteran who you were to feel sympathy for and a level of understanding with but now I see things in him where I just think there's elements of your character which are really, really flawed and flawed to the point where they're not really forgivable. And it seems that... Yeah, he was an anti-hero, wasn't he? He was an anti-hero, but and now... And yet, I don't believe so anymore. I also see elements in in him of... Yeah, he is a... Obviously, he's a, it's alluded to that he's a victim of PTSD, but looking at him now, very little about his, his background as a Vietnam vet he's gone into. A lot of it is just mentioned briefly and suggested ultimately this might not even be a film about PTSD it could just be a film about mental health because as was mentioned uh, Paul Schrader or Martin Scorsese mentioned it in some of the extras maybe it was one of the commentaries on on the blu-ray but they say about the fact that Travis Bickle the way he is was not something he wasn't the product of war war didn't do that to him there was already something psychologically set within him to make him capable of doing what he ultimately does there is an argument that the PTSD element is is just sort of, you know, he may not even be a Vietnam veteran. Is there anything in the film that directly suggests that he is? 
as in like it's quite clear that he is like a picture of him with his Vietnam buddy something like that there's nothing like that in there there's suggestions that a lot of the stuff that we see from the perspective of Travis is actually stuff that's just in his mind things which are made up which we'll come to later yeah he does say at the beginning that he was honorably just discharged yeah and I think there is a uh, Vietnamese flag in his um, in his apartment isn't it but again none of you know he, he could be a, a war fetishist yeah, yeah. None, you know, none of that could actually, you know, there's, there's no actual proof there that he is what he says he is. But again, you know, that's just one suggestion I've come up with now on the fly. Yeah, it, he does have in his apartment. He has like the army duffel bag hanging up as well, doesn't he? That stuff he could have picked up in a flea market. Yeah, absolutely. But you know, you're referring back to your comment saying about the, his, the, with his mental health and watching it like much like yourself, you know, for the first time in absolutely ages i was i one of my notes is actually is this is this film taking place in travis's mind yeah is he an actual physical yeah. person i think because because of the film does have like a fever dream uh quality to it in part especially with it with, with this the score being hugely hugely important to the storytelling hmm. and you do sort of wonder whether it is like it, it, the events are taking place is 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 this actual reality that you, you're watching before you yeah. or is it uh, is it travis's ideal to a, to to an extent reality albeit that he doesn't get the girl he doesn't he, he, he does save people's lives i'm not saying but do you, do you understand what I'm trying yeah, to yeah, say yeah. To emphasize? Yeah, but you know, like Steve, you know, you've you've obviously it sounds like you've changed your opinion as as to what younger Steve thought of Travis, and I've certainly gone through the same thing, and it's made me completely reevaluate all of the stuff that I thought I knew about Travis Bickle, and really now, you know, as I as I come on later in life and I, I get more life experience and stuff, I, I realise that unless you see something firsthand, that gives you cause to question it. One person say so of oh yeah, yeah I, mean, I was in Vietnam or whatever doesn't actually mean that they were. And I, I'm thinking now, at any point during the you know, the reams of interviews and commentaries and stuff that Scorsese and Paul Schrader have given, did they ever mention PTSD and, and war as being a direct thing that they were referring to when this film was written and when it was made? Because you know Paul Schrader he wrote Taxi Driver in ten days. Now that was the result of some tough times he was having following a marriage breakup. He was living in his car and he went to the emergency ward one day as he was having stomach pains and he realized that that was the first time he'd spoken to people in weeks or maybe even months having spent god knows how long driving around in his car like a cab driver and then he built a psychological reality and a narrative around these experiences that eventually became the script for Taxi Driver. And that, to me, suggests more a sort of thing about self-imposed loneliness and mental health as opposed to a direct result of the stuff that a man has gone through um, having been served in Vietnam. And like the theme of loneliness was one that Schrader later said was, you know, he said it was, it was more self-imposed. Was that maybe reflecting more on Schrader's own experiences? I don't, I don't think there's any doubt about it being self-imposed. I think all the way through, he is separating himself from people. And he's, he is, as um, Sybil Shepherd Betsy says, he is a, you know, a walking contradiction. Yeah. Because on the one hand, he's, you know, he's looking after his body, he's doing all these exercises, and then he's eating junk with, you know, and he's taking popping pills all the time. He's not looking after himself. Mm. He says about how he's not the type to, uh, was a morbid self-attention, and yet he's writing all these things in a diary. Yeah, yeah, that's the that's the contradiction element, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think that the whole film is, you know, he, he might seem like he is 
trying to do something. He's you know he's stuck in this world, and he might he might even see like he's trying to get out of it by axing Betsy out and everything. But mm. he hates the streets, and yet he tells the the man who's hiring him that I'll I'll go anywhere, anytime, any place. He's putting himself in all of these positions that he knows he's going to hate. So it is definitely self-imposed he is a victim but he's also you know the reason why he is in his the situation he's making a lot of money he says yeah and yet he's living in that dump going back to like the the genesis of this one is there anything you guys want to talk about with regards to the, the creative sort of birth of taxi driver and and traders obviously you know this is his brainchild and then subsequently how scorsese came on board as director Steve is the man for this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, um, Scorsese, of course, you know, he'd made a number of films before. You know, famously, he'd made Boxcar Bertha, and he was talking to um, uh, John Cassavetes, who said, you know, this, you've made a good film, but it's a piece of shit. He said, what do you want to do? You know, I mean, are you going to be do making, you know, fluff like this for the rest of your life? Famously, Scorsese then, he said, well, I've got a script. I want to make Mean Streets. And, you know, Casavati set him down on this path, which, you know, so he made that, then he made Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. Mm-hmm. And I, um, I think it was uh, Robert De Niro himself who actually brought the script to Scorsese. And the writer, as you said, Paul Schrader, he was brought up in a very strict Calvinist family. Now, Calvinism is um, a form of Protestantism, which is very much based on the words of the Bible. You know, that is whatever the Bible says, that's it. There's no um, contradiction. There's no question. You follow that. And it's very, very strict. And for years, right up until he was a teenager and he went to um, to university, he, he hadn't seen a film. He yeah. wasn't allowed to watch films, mm-hmm. which I think is remarkable considering there he was then a few years later writing a film script. And he went on to make all these you know great films himself and very, very visual films. Mm. From you know hardcore to Mishima and you know all these others and right in um, the Last Temptation of Christ for uh, Scorsese as well. Yeah, and he was the perfect coming of my you know so he was a very lonely man and he started writing this. Scorsese had his troubles in the seventies. He's been very honest about that. You know with um, drugs and uh, you know I mean he didn't quite fit in with the Brat Pack that he was a part of. And, of course, then you have Rob De Niro, who, you know, he'd already won an Oscar by the time this film came out. And yet, there was something about all three of them that could see something in this script and identify with this character, which is quite concerning in many ways, Mm. you know, that they could see something in this character that they did identify with, and he brought them all together, and it was... You know, it's lightning in a bottle, isn't it? It is. And, and you know, the film cost, it cost $1.3 million to shoot. And Scorsese never felt it would be a success. And he stated it was more of a labor of love for those people involved in, in his production. And it took in the region of eight to nine weeks to film, the majority of it being night shoots. And, and like you say there, though, Steve, about you know the fact that he had his Calvinist upbringing, didn't see a film until he was a teenager. But there's a lot of filmic influence in Taxi Driver. But I think all of that comes from Scorsese. Schrader is a writer. He's a writer. You know, he's, he's clearly put, I think, a lot of his own personal experience and his own personal demons into the character, into into Travis Bickle and into the story. But then a lot of the film flourishes within Taxi Driver come from Scorsese. It's like that that shot early on of Travis on 57th Street. I think he's he's either going to or coming from the, the taxi rank. And he's got these dissolves as he walks towards the camera. That was one that Scorsese took from George Stevens' 1953 Western Shane. And then later on in the film, he's homaging Paolo and Pressburger's The Small Black Room with that shot of the traffic lights changing through the rain-soaked windscreen. You know, that's just two of any number of, of film references that Scorsese could point to that he's got from, you know, 
films from the golden era of Hollywood, which he loves. Yeah, but there's also a very um, distinctive shots that he would have made up from, you know, himself. You know, just before he leaves the God, taxi yeah. rank, yeah. is that scene when he comes out and the camera, instead of following Bickle as he leaves the, um, the taxi rank and goes out into the street, the camera goes in the opposite direction yeah. and shows you everything that he's seeing. And then we follow, we come back to Bickle again. Apparently, when the, when he said he'd do that, the um, crew were like, what, what are you doing? This is not how you make a film. And yet it's perfect in terms of getting to the psyche of that man. But in the script of um, Taxi Driver, there's only one see, there's only one shot which um, um, Schrader wrote in. And that's right to the very end when the scene looks down. He said, look, you know, at, at, at the carnage, which, uh, um, which makes up the end of the film. Ah, right. So that, that was Schrader's doing, right. That, yeah, Schrader. That yeah. was the only see, um, shot that Schrader actually described in the script. You're making that uh, about the shot. About I, I'm assuming, Steve, you're talking about the initial interview. You just have the in. initial interview as he's yeah. leaving. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's, there's a shot when he rings Betsy and he's on the he's on the payphone and the camera cuts away. Put 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 a pin in that one, Leighton. I've set aside a whole little segment where we're going to dissect that one. Well, maybe we should go through the film chronologically and we'll get to that and we'll talk about that in detail. <laughs> Talk about De Niro, and, and this was like the right time and the right place for everyone involved. And and De Niro, always the method actor, he actually drove a, a taxi around the streets of New York, having obtained his taxi driver license. And one night, some guy gets in the taxi and sees De Niro's name on the license card. And at this point, he'd not long ago won Best Supporting Actor Oscar for The Godfather Part Two. And the guy asked De Niro, he said, geez, are things really that bad? You're going to drive a taxi? And De Niro just says, yep. <laughs> you know typical De Niro talk about throwing himself into a role we'd see him do it then four years later as he just did that incredible weight gain and loss for Raging Bull and you know he's just he, he's, he's absolutely remarkable and you know I know there's always going to be an argument as to what his best performance is I, I would still probably just because of how much how much of a chameleon he was I'd probably say the Raging Bull is his best performance but then there's literally nothing in it between this and Taxi Driver and, and, and a few other films of his. I think Raging Bull is De Niro's best role. I abs- I think he's flawless mm-hmm. in The Godfather Part 2. But Raging Bull, you see a man at war with himself. Yeah. De Niro just lives it, breathes it. Yeah. And he, he does he does similar in Taxi Driver. He's already a frail man, but he's a frail man willing to sort of look after himself despite putting cheese on cake, which makes no <laughs> sense to me whatsoever. <laughs> you mean apple pie with but, a slice of cheese? What the hell is that about? It's sweet and savoury. I mean, sweet and savoury, like it works. No, no. Why, no. why do you why do you have apple sauce with pork chops? It it does it, it does work. Oh, I've no, never tried it. No. I've never tried a slice of cheese with apple pie, but you know. Um, no, it's, it's if you have an apple pie, you have custard, isn't it? You know, <laughs> it'd probably be squirty cheese these days, anyway. Yeah, yeah, it probably would. <laughs> right. So let's talk about. Sybil Shepherd as Betsy. Now, when we first see her, she's walking towards the Palantine campaign headquarters where she works. She's wearing a white dress when Travis first sees her. Now, we've been preparing for an upcoming episode, Steve. And do you know what this scene with her kind of being this sort of slow motion scene with where she's almost angelic and wearing this white dress? Do you know what that reminded me of? What's that called? In Citizen Kane, where Bernstein, as an old man, is telling the story about the girl in the white dress who we saw oh, just once off, uh, yeah, years Perry. ago when he was a young man, but he never forgot this girl. And he said, no, not a day goes by where I don't think of it. Now, what do you think of the casting of Sybil Shepherd as Betsy and her role that her character plays in Taxi Driver and what she represents to Travis? 
Well, she is an angel, isn't she? That's uh, she is something pure in the darkness of the streets that he sees. You know, the fact that he that first shot, she is wearing white. She's got blonde hair. There's no darkness about it at all. You know, and and of course in that scene, you've got Martin Scorsese sitting on the stump and you know watching her as well. You know, it's not only Travis Bickle is watching; everybody's drawn to her. And Sybil Shepherd herself, she was a model, but she's a very good actress as well. We we don't give her the credit I think sometimes that um, she deserves because. It was quite an unforgiving role in as much as she, you know, on the one hand, she she, she is the love object or the, la- the last object, you could say. But on the other hand, she's got she's actually a little bit of reality that breaks through, through his uh, the bubble that he lives in. You know, she, she's got this playfulness because at the end of the day, she's she's in it for 20 minutes, isn't she? Pretty much. Yeah. And she has this playfulness about her, uh, as you say, like this, this pureness and this almost like, as you say, an angelic status, isn't it? That she almost floats through the film. Until... And it's a, it's a kind of flirty playfulness at the same time, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And just the way that she sort of carries herself and she knows people are looking at her. She knows that, but she's not flaunting it. She's just being herself. Mm. I think, you know, Travis sees her, he's smitten, isn't he, straight away. He's head over heels in love. Because he lives his life a certain way, he thinks everybody else probably lives the same way that he does. Yes. And later on in the film, when there's a shot of Travis is watching American Bandstand, the, the, and, you know, the TV's there, and he's I think he's got a gun in his hand. It's totally, totally encapsulates his, his, his loneliness, and he realises... I think in that scene, you sort of realise, he realises how much he's pushed Betsy away by his actions and by being overbearing, the flowers getting returned back. And she she's a perfect light side to Travis's dark side. She's just luminous. One thing I was going to say too, when you first see her and it's in slow motion and you see Martin Scorsese sat, the guy comes out of the Palantine office, he's, uh, he's wearing a T-shirt. Did you notice what T-shirt he's wearing? No. He has a Columbia Studios T-shirt on, but it's inside out, ah. so it's all backwards. And I'd never noticed it until I rewatched it. I've still never day. noticed that. Wow. No, no, neither have I. Yeah. It's the classic lady with the light yeah. and the Columbia, the big lettering and all the rest. Yeah. And it's a T-shirt, and it's inside out. I don't, I don't know whether it's perhaps he was a little bit too on the nose, and Marty's probably gone. Oh, do you know what? This nest not rubber we're back is in the wrong way. Hmm. This uh, you know, raining in a little bit. But yeah, when we rewatch it, you can see that the guy who opens the door for her, he's got a Columbia t shirt on and is inside out. Something that's just dawned on me now. We'll come later on to the bit where Martin Scorsese makes his second, not not so much a cameo, but his actual appearance as an actor in Taxi Driver as the guy in the back of the cab. Do you think within whatever sort of mythology that is being created here for us that the guy that we see outside the palantine headquarters is that same guy because my brain tells me it's not and it's not meant to be it's literally just meant to be the director doing an alfred hitchcock yeah i agree because the scene later on there was somebody cast for that yeah it was it was the guy from um mean streets that calls jimmy a mook in that hilarious okay, yeah. bar fight scene <laughs> yeah was it really yeah, it was yeah, him. Yeah, was and, yeah. Was I didn't know that. I genuinely didn't know that. In that scene that we're talking about, it's the scene with Scorsese in the back of the taxi. He's the guy who's going to kill his wife and her lover. Yeah, that was originally going to be played by that actor, uh, the one who called Jimmy the Mook in Mean Streets. He got injured just before shooting was about to begin. So Scorsese decided to play the part himself. But, you know, the way that he's played by this jittery, fast-talking Scorsese, that to me, that just makes Travis look level-headed by comparison. 
Have you noticed how many edits are in that scene? Not consciously, no. If you rewatch it, um, because of the the back and forth, back and forth, there's loads of edits in that scene. And I think that scene plants Trav in the in Travis's uh, psyche because he's got his work colleagues going on. You carry a piece, you carry a piece. Then he picks up this passenger who says park across the way from this building and then he does his monologue and his monologue is extremely graphic but he sows the seeds for the 44 magnum mm. in that oh, scene, yes. which is yeah. which he then goes on later to buy doesn't he yeah and I, I agree i think it's two different people albeit that it's martin scorsese yeah <laughs> but yeah it because it, it, it is quite jarring because with alfred hitchcock it was a nod and a wink wasn't it yeah. when his cameo was when he appeared in his own films for him to cameo twice it's definitely i would say two characters there is a lot of foreshadowing and you've you know you've, you've mentioned about the 44 magnum but going back to the scene with uh, betsy in the office with tom isn't it delbert brooks uh, and there's there's a moment where she um, asks him to see if he can write the, like the match with thumb missing and the other with his know, little his finger, finger in his thumb i think yeah yeah yeah, and yeah. of course, when he starts the massacre at the end, the first person he shoots shoots in the hand, and yeah. almost identical um, to this, oh, you know, yeah. description that uh, Betsy's given. Steve, I yeah. have never picked up on that until now. Wow. Who did Who did the makeup? Was it Dick Smith? It was Dick Smith. It who was did the Dick Exorcist. Smith. Yeah. yeah, I used to know that literally off by heart, and then it's one of the things that has since fallen to the back of my brain. But yeah, as soon as you mentioned, I think yeah, is it? Yeah, it's got to be Dick Smith. I've never met you know makeup yeah. effects legend. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So going back to the the sort of initial kind of I see like an inverted commas relationship between Travis and Betsy. That first coffee shop kind of you know it's like their first date, isn't it? Where Travis mm. so early on in their relationship puts down Tom, played brilliantly by Albert Brooks, really early on and and with a lot of vigor and more than I've noticed before and this is the thing that stood out for me travis feels the need to firmly point out that this other male in betty's life just isn't right for him it's the kind of forceful way in which he does that that made me feel quite uneasy and uncomfortable and it's one of many signposts to travis's flaws as a person that he can't help but act on these impulses this this kind of these feelings that he's, he's you know these negative feelings that this man tom is a rival who he needs to get out of his way i was watching that he's, inti- he's intimidated he is he's intimidated he but then he's, he's he's so confident in the in the way he kind of goes at Betsy and, and says, this guy, I don't like him. I, you know, I, you know, I don't think he's right for you and, and, and this, that, whatever. He, he doesn't even know this guy. But it's just the fact that Travis is objectifying Betsy almost immediately in a relationship and is pushing aside away from her any other kind of potential male suitors. And the way he does it, it just smacks of a low self-esteem domestic abuser that just wants to own someone. And it really did make me feel uncomfortable more so than any other time when I watch this film. Yeah, when he first sees and he, he asks Betsy out for the first time, he's telling her about how I think you're a lonely person and all this. I think he's just describing himself. He's not yeah. describing her at all. Yeah. He doesn't know her. He's just describing himself and projecting his own inadequacies, his own failings onto her. Yeah, Betsy doesn't, you know, she doesn't, like, confront him on that. She doesn't, you know, say, no, no, that's not the case at all. I'm not lonely. Yeah, it could be a bit of both. The fact that he's quite perceptive and he is seeing these things in Betsy. She is kind of going along with it and she's not immediately yeah. repulsed by him. Even though he is, he's got some issues. <laughs> she, she she is playing along, isn't she? Yeah. 
initially because she's probably flattered by the you know the, you know I think you're the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. I think she's she's flattered and then one or two things are said and she's perhaps going oh, perhaps I'll see how we, uh, a film we'll go and have a I'll go and watch it on a date and watch a film see how it goes from there see how it goes from there. But he wants control of her, doesn't he? Of course he does. And that's yeah. what it, that that's what it's, that, that screams now. Is that he wants he wants her in his life? She probably she probably gets hit on an awful lot in her life within this sort of world, this taxi driver world. So that's why she's she's instant you're instantly attracted to her because she's charismatic, she's pretty, and she sort of she's probably the same with everybody. Hmm. But when she has somebody different in her life, then she's probably going, oh, perhaps I'll try this, see how this goes. But of course, Travis is such a damaged human being. His mindset is right. He's not wrong. His mindset is right. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, as the film plays out and as it goes along, we see that his mindset, he thinks, is right. Yeah, there's a hint as well, isn't it, in the way that he wants to... Hurt. He doesn't want Betsy. He wants his version of Betsy. Yeah. He wants to... Um, whatever he wants, this ideal woman, he wants to create her almost in his likeness, you know, j- mm. just in the same as um, in the end of uh, Vertigo, you know, when... Uh, uh, I can't remember the name of the character. Kim... Scotty, you know, re- yeah. And Kim Novak. Kim Novak, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so you know, I think there's a hint of that as well because he's he's not he doesn't know who Betsy is, but he's got an idea of who she should be, and that's what he wants. I, I think he thinks he is saving the damsel in distress. I think that's what that's that's what he's after, isn't it? Yes, yes, he wants to save his blonde bombshell. Yeah, but from he, what? Well, well, New York City. Yes, yes. Yeah, I just think, you know, he wants to be a knight in shining armor. He wants recognition. He wants something. Look at it, you know, the tagline of the film. It doesn't allude to directly to PTSD, to him being a war veteran, to him being one of like, you know, American society's sort of shunned people. It's literally on every street in our, in every city there's a nobody who dreams of being a somebody. And that could apply to any one of us, couldn't it? Anyone yeah. that has yeah. any sort of illusions to being more than what they are. And I think that's what he wants. He wants some sort of ful- fulfillment. And he initially sees it in Betsy, but then when things go south, his attention gets drawn elsewhere. And he does actually eventually get to be the knight in shining armor, just not in the way that he thought he would. On it, on just their second date, <laughs> Travis takes Betsy to see Sometime Sweet Susan. This porn film in a grimy theater, something that causes initially kind of a bit of intrigue in it but as soon as she sees what she's getting herself into it causes disgust and revulsion and that kind of brings their short-lived relationship to an end now this scene for me shows that travis just doesn't know how to relate to someone and or or someone that's quote unquote normal and his choice of date venue is like foolishly inappropriate and then we have that scene with travis on the phone in the hallway the one that you mentioned now this is the one that i want your interpretation of guys with that camera move where travis is on the phone to betsy and then the camera just tracks to the right and just focuses on the empty hall behind him now what to you is that scene all about because from the very first time i I saw taxi driver i thought what is that why is he doing that what am what am i what is my eye supposed to be drawn to me personally, I've always seen, I, I recognise it as the exit, the end of the relationship. If you look, the hallway is very bright, it's very white, and then it goes out into the darkness. And I think this is why, as you hear the conversation and the, you know, well, can I can I call you tomorrow? Can I call you the day after? Can I can I do this? Can I do that? And it's clear that Betsy's ending all ties with Travis. Mm. 
you know, the, the end of the poorness in his life for that period. I, I think it works so well because you can still hear the conversation ongoing and it's Travis pleading. He's not, he's not down on his knees pleading, but he's pleading, isn't he? Yeah, and yeah. Taking yourself away, you, 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 you're not sort of privy. Well, you can still hear part of the conversation, but you're not privy to it all. And, you know, th- then that's shot of that sparse white hallway and you see, actually see Travis lead, and that is it. That is the end of the relationship. June 8th. My life has taken another turn again. The days move along with regularity, over and over. And suddenly, there is a change. you really think that he is talking to Betsy at the time or is it all in his head I've never questioned it until recently Steve but there is isn't there there's a suggestion yeah. that and do you know what made me think of that flowers the flowers yes right if he's getting flowers sent to Betsy and she's turning them away why would they ever be sent to the address of the sender they'd go back to the florist wouldn't they they wouldn't yeah. they, he wouldn't end up in possession of them and the fact he's got this apartment full of these stale flowers it was only this time when I was watching, I was thinking, that doesn't really make sense. You know, the way flowers are delivered in New York could be different to the way they're delivered over here. No, if she had received them, she would have put them in the bin. She yes. wouldn't have found out where he lived to return them, because that, in that way, that's an extension. As soon as I started career. thinking that, it caused yeah. me to question whether or not the hallway scene, we're seeing the empty hallway whilst he's on the telephone, because that's an empty phone line. There's no one, you know. There's and, nobody there. Yeah, yeah. And but that, 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 that harks back to what I was saying earlier, isn't it? About the film just happening or the story happening in Travis's mind, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. It, you know the, the reality that he wants versus the reality that is actually happening, isn't it? Yeah, and he so, also foreshadows, and probably the most famous scene in the um, film, the, you know, you're talking to me. Mm, yeah. He's not talking mm. to anybody. There is nobody there. Yeah. yeah. He's just talking to himself. Yeah. I, I, I do think he, that telephone conversation was, I, I think it, we're not meant to believe that it's all going on in his head. It's just, you know, it, it does kind of make sense if you look at the phone from a certain point of view. Because by that point, Travis is effectively stalking Betsy. She spurned his affections. He repeatedly sends her these flowers, which, you know, how he comes into possession of them, I don't know. That all leads to that aggressive confrontation of the campaign office where we first see how unhinged and frightening Travis is or at least how he can be all of a sudden now that she, this woman doesn't want him he's like a totally different person there's no more charm there's there's nothing about him at all he's just aggressive and confrontational there's just stuff that I'm seeing in Travis now which maybe years ago the younger me would have just brushed over but they, they're just inexcusable kind of character traits which makes me see him as much less of an anti-hero than I would have done so in my youth. Uh, did yeah. you notice uh, that scene as well? I I only noticed it when I rewatched recently when Tom confronts him and he does that karate pose and all the rest. As he's going out the door, he pushes a woman out of the way in his blind sort of rage and the door smashes as well at the same time. No, I, no I've never noticed that. Yeah, it's a, there's a woman just outside the door, and Bickle just brushes her out of the way, and you know, and if he had any sort of sort of sensitivity or compassion, then he, he wouldn't do that, would he? Yes, no, no. And because he because he's been let down, 
in his eyes because he's upset because he's he's being ejected get out of my fucking way type of type of thing isn't it yeah and you haven't you haven't seen that before with him no no but it is there it's there on screen yeah, yeah. i also think that um you've got to compare him with tom you know, yeah tom is a bit of a drip he's a bit of a you know a sop but He's a decent person. He is, and and you know, to be honest, he's he's also you know he's not this kind of foppish sort of almost typical Albert Brooks character that we've seen you know later on in his career. He's actually got a bit of thing about him. He he does, even though you can tell there's fear in his voice. He he does confront Travis and and effectively try and be his own sort of um, savior to Betsy. Even though she makes it quite clear that she just she just doesn't need him to be, and she makes a few kind of funny little quips about you know being being the, the man in the relationship. Yes, but he's also perhaps in in terms of being the knight in white in shining armor, he is more effective than Travis Bickle ever could be. Oh God, yeah, 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 yeah. You know. So then, you know, now we're seeing like this: the, the cracks are really starting to show in Travis. And then you got that scene where Travis meets with Doughboy's gun dealer contact Andy. That was played by a guy called Stephen Prince in his first acting role. And there's some real gun fetishism at play. Now this scene now plays much longer than I remember it. This then leads in turn into Travis's like physical conditioning for whatever plan his fractured mind is trying to put in play. And this this culminates in, as you mentioned, Steve, Taxi Driver's most famous scene, the You Talking to Me mirror gun monologue. June 29th. I gotta get in shape now. From now on, it'll be 50 push-ups each morning. 50 pull-ups. From now on, it'll be total organization. Every muscle must be tight. The idea had been growing in my brain for some time. True force. All the king's men cannot put it back together again. You talking to me? You talking to me? You talking to me? Then who the hell else are you talking to? Talking to me? Well, I'm the only one here. Who do you think you're talking to? Oh, yeah? Huh? Okay. Listen, you screwheads. Here is a man who would not take it anymore. A man who stood up against the scum, the dogs, the filth. Here is someone who stood up. Now I see it clearly. My whole life is pointed in one direction. I see that now. There never has been any choice for me. Now in the script, this was written purely as Travis looks in the mirror and talks to himself. When it came to the actual final film, it was all pretty much ad-lib by De Niro. Well, it was one of the last things they filmed as well, wasn't it? Because they were over schedule and apparently they were... The company men were out just outside trying to, you know, saying, come on, we got to wrap this up. we got to put this um, in the can. And they were just kept on filming us. Scorsese was on the floor telling him to say it again, say it again. Yeah. The shot is something we don't notice because it's not highlighted, but most of it is through a mirror because everything is on the wrong side. You know, his, yeah. uh, his mole is on the, is suddenly on the wrong side. He's, his right hand is, you know, so it's all through a mirror. So it's, he's looking at himself. 
Yeah, we, we are seeing his reflection. Yes, yeah, and it's one of the few times normally in the film he looks at the world through the glass of the car or the mirror. And this is the first time I think he's actually looking at himself. He, I don't think he sees himself as the bad guy, yeah. but he is projecting all the, the darkness, all the, the scum you know, of the streets yeah. onto himself. Yeah. And then fighting it, you know, I mean, he's standing up to it. Yeah, there's, there's definitely elements in Travis Bickle which have come across really strongly. And these are probably the, the things that stood out to me most when I was younger, but there's like that vigilante element. And Scorsese, in one of the audio commentaries, he made a parallel with Travis making this like quick release arm holster that we see him fabricate out of like the, the slider off a, off, a, off a draw. He made a kind of parallel with Batman tooling himself up to fight the forces of evil in Gotham City. And there are these questions of Batman's own mental state throughout the law of Batman man and it's the same like is bruce wayne crazy is, is travis bickle crazy because what is he gearing himself up to do you know what is his ultimate you know goal because at that point in the story i don't think he's fully embraced the fact that iris is his way out of this sort of mire that he's in it's the admission to wizard isn't it just before all of this yeah 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 i, I feel like I'm, I'm gonna do something yeah i've got and you know he's saying i've got these i've got these thoughts man yeah. and you know, and I've got this, and I've it's, got It's that. a cry for help, but, isn't it, to someone... It is, it is. It's a cry for is, help to someone that he kind of trusts and, and, and one yeah. of the few people he can open up to in any way. Exactly. Probably the only person. Yeah, and yeah. ultimately, Wizard and his, his co-workers are the one who point him in the direction to the gun dealer who treats it like selling a pair of shoes. Yeah. When he sells in the guns, he's going, do you want mescaline? Do you want coke, acid? And it just starts reeling everything off. Do you want a car? A game you know, Cadillac. It's, it's, yeah. It's, Cadillac. Yeah, yeah. And, and, yeah, and, it, and it's like, you know, right, after you finish in the shoe section, if you head over to the underwear section, it's it's like, it's, it's like he works in a department store, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a true story, right? I, when I was up in, living up in London, I went to, I was walking up Shaftesbury Avenue one day and this woman came up to me and she said, are you looking for a girl? Now, you know, I was a bit flustered because this is the first time in a big city and everything. I was like, what? And she said, if you don't like white girls, we got black girls, we got Chinese girls, we got, and she, this is what she was doing. And she was trying to sell me these girls. And it's exactly like that. Every time I see him talking about, you know, do you want a Cadillac, $2,000 with a pink slip? Mm. It's like that. It's, it's just a transaction. What they're selling doesn't matter. Yeah. Well, Steve, put, put a pin in that when we press stop on the record. And you can tell me in Leighton in private what you actually <laughs> went for. <laughs> I'll tell you a story about when I went to Mexico then as well. Leighton, Leighton, this is relatively family-friendly stuff here, mate, so we don't want to know that one. Yeah, and that's why I said off it. So, <laughs> so right, you mentioned the department store. Let's, let's talk about the convenience store, and in particular the scene with the convenience store robbery. Now, Schrader talks about Travis in the script as being this overt racist. Now, this is one of the things that Scorsese and I think quite wisely convinced Schrader that they should tone down in the script, which is by making Sport and the other brothel characters we see later on in the film all white, as opposed to in the script where they were all black characters. Now, putting aside the intentions of Schrader's script and concentrating purely on the final film, do you think there are elements of racism in Travis? Now, for me, I'd say there's no clear or firm answer to that. Earlier on in the film, we see him hitting on Diane Abbott's character in the um, porn theatre concession booth, a black woman. He's also known for not discriminating, um, unlike his co-workers, as to who he has in his cab and, and certain parts of New York where he'll go. But then we have the scene where he shoots this black man, admittedly one committing a robbery, without any consequences. And what is it that Victor Argo shopkeeper is doing when he sits this dead guy up and beats him with a metal bar? And then, that scene you mentioned earlier where we cut to Travis later on, 
watching Bandstand on television with a gun and he's focusing on an African-American couple dancing. Now, was there any intent there on Scorsese's part to imply some sort of racism in Travis? And it's something that on this most recent viewing, you know, because in lots of discussions I've heard on other podcasts and documentaries and stuff like that, it, it mentions the question of, is Travis Bickle a racist? You know, that comes up occasionally. And it's one that I've given a lot of thought of. Isn't his opening monologue about washing the streets clean and he goes into naming cultures, religions? I, th- he's, he's, I think he's more referring to the, the kind of seedier underbelly of New York as opposed to it being based on any particular kind of ethnic group. He does use racial slurs in the film. Yeah, but yeah. not only that, but there's only one of the taxi drivers, Charlie T, is black. Yeah. And he hardly talks to him, you know, when he's introduced, you know. And, and by the way, just a, an aside, that's Norman Matlock, who was the police commissioner in uh, Ghostbusters. But... Um... <laughs> <laughs> no way! What? Yes, yeah, and he also is and the police commissioner in um, the Blues Brothers as well. But anyway, oh my God! Wow. Steve. Anyway, I think I mean there is an element <laughs> of racism there, but I think that he is prejudiced against just about anybody that yeah. he doesn't think fits his very very narrow view of the world. Yeah. So I think that okay, Betsy, she's very white she's got blonde hair mm-hmm. she's like an angel but anyway even tom i think is he's prejudiced against tom yeah he's white i mean i don't think he's overtly racism although racism is part of him but i think that he's just you know he's he's an equal opportunist racism yeah, yeah. right okay then is harvey Keitel then portraying a black man well effectively in the script uh, the character of sport was going to be a black man and that's how harvey Keitel is playing it isn't it Rightly or wrongly, that's what he's aiming for, isn't it? Or is he just playing street? I don't know. I, th- I think, yeah. I've never seen it like that. I think he's just playing street, like you say, Steve. And his character is so unusual and, and yeah. so quirky. Like, I don't even know how to describe sport. I initially well, thought he was a Native American when I first saw him. Yeah, there you could. Oh, you know, yeah. right, yeah. With yeah. his long yeah. hair, yeah. yeah. And the... yeah, yeah. Headbands as well, isn't it? You know? Yeah. But then he's got the the long pinky fingernail, isn't he? Yeah, the um, the cocaine pinky, yeah. Especially from when the film is set, and given the the melting pot of New York City was and still is to some extent, you know, is Harvey Keitel seeing what he's seeing on the streets of New York, and is he, you know, thinking I'm going to take elements of that, I'm going to take elements of that, and there is slang, and there is slang through generations, isn't it? That mm-hmm. you know it is picked up and it is lent upon in countless films, music, you know, culture itself. So it's Harvey Cattell leaning into that. As you said, you know, the script was a black man originally. Mm, yeah. I, I personally think that Cattell is probably leaning into the city more than, shall we say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And if you mention Cattell, guys, then that's a perfect kind of segue into talking about Jodie Foster in what has got to be one of the most remarkable and uncomfortable child performances I've seen in any film. Now she was 12 maybe 13 when she filmed Taxi Driver playing a child prostitute called Iris and for me this is the thing that the film deals with the cause is probably the most discomfort but Scorsese never shies away from you know the harsh realities of, of what this the life this young girl has found herself in Now she'd appeared in Alice Doesn't Live You Anymore Scorsese film from 1974 but in this film she is just so gross and she, for me, easily matches De Niro's performance. It, it, it is a, a performance, and, you know, you hear about child actors and, you know, the great child actor performances. Some of those don't go on to have great careers as adults. Yeah. 
No, there are plenty of examples of those who have and those who haven't. But Jodie Foster in this film is astonishing. Mm-hmm. Yes, and, and if you look, if you read articles, De Niro is the one who's practically directing her in that film because Corsese, yes, he wanted a child prostitute. There's a child prostitute in the story. He didn't know what to say to her, and De Niro's the one who's shepherding her through the film. Mm. Right in this scene, we've got we've got to do this, but I'm going to do that. And De Niro's the one who walked her through the film. She's talked about you know making the film, especially the end, which we'll come to. But De Niro's the one who sort of took her by the hand and was like, right, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to do it. And Scorsese was like very much a case of let the actors speak amongst themselves and let them get on with it. But yeah. Jodie Foster is absolutely astonishing. Twelve years of age, Jesus Christ! Yeah. I mean. We all probably think, you know, right, what was I doing when I was 12? But there's no way, no way. If I was if I was female and living in New York and I was an actor, there's no way I could have got my head around being in Maris Corsese's latest film. No yeah, way. And, and the, the, the other girl that we see her with, she was actually, I think, uh, I don't know how old she was at the time, but she was a young street worker. She was actually brought on in a kind of advisory capacity to almost, you know, shepherd Jodie Foster in, into sort of playing this you know, amazingly difficult role. Yeah, what, what do you say about De Niro's help in shepherd her performance as well? Uh, Foster says tells about how they went over the, the coffee shop scene, another coffee shop, just as Betsy's, the first time he met, uh, he takes Betsy out, it's yeah. a coffee shop. She um, talks about how they went over the script and they went over it again and again and again. And then all of a sudden, De Niro would throw in a new line or a new word and change the script slightly, just to keep Foster on one hand, to keep her on edge, because so, she didn't know what was going to happen, yeah. but also to teach her that you've got to listen. And I think, you know, Foster used that. She, that probably was one of the best acting lessons that she ever had as a child. Oh, God, yeah. Sport is her pimp. I and mean, you've got that one of, of only a few scenes in the film that, that kind of breaks the rule of everything being told from Travis's point of view. And that's the scene in the red-lit room with Sport and Iris. Now, Scorsese wanted to show that she wasn't being held there against her will. But to me, it's clear that she's being exploited and coerced. And it's also, oh, yes. the whole scene is just really creepy and uncomfortable. But it does serve a purpose because it makes Sport's final fate all the more satisfying when it comes. Yeah, she's being groomed. Oh, yeah, God, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you know, it, it's, it's just like Juliet Lewis in Cape Fear. Echoes of that in uh, Cape Fear. But yeah, she's being groomed, you know, and she's not there because she wants to be. She yeah. thinks she wants to be. She, she thinks she's got a good life because she's got all this freedom and everything, but um, she hasn't, and he's the reason for her. Yeah, and now that she's coming to Travis's life now, that's fulfilling, obviously, like I said, his need to be almost a knight in shining armour, which he failed to satisfy this need with Betsy. So when he crosses paths with Iris, he becomes she becomes the focus of his his need, this need he has to save someone and for himself to be someone, for himself to gain importance. And then that leads to him then being able to sort of push aside his previous infatuation with Betsy and it, it leads then to that burning of the dead flowers. Now, whether or not he actually sent them to her or not, you know, is, is just a, a theory. But to me, that scene is very much him burning away his need for Betsy because now he's got a new purpose and then as we also see a new haircut a mohawk what what prompts the mohawk it was something to do with vietnam wasn't it that um, people who were going on almost suicidal missions used to cut their hair that um, way i i think it's a when he's initially in that early scene earlier on which is an amazing scene of when he when he goes and kind of first speaks to that secret service guy Henry Crinkle. Yeah, Henry Crinkle. And, yeah, K-R-I-N-K-L-E. And he gives, yeah, yeah, gives his postcode. So that's a digit too many. 
I'm I'm getting it mixed up with my phone number, which makes no sense at all, does it? And and then I think because Travis is astute enough to realise that this Secret Service guy is kind of rumbling the fact that he's a bit odd and he's potentially up to no good, when he later goes back there, is he going back there to kill Palantine? Yes, but I don't think he goes back there. No, when he later goes back there, he obviously wants to not have his cover blown. And, and not be instantly recognised should that same Secret Service guy be there and the other guy that, that, that uh, took his photograph. So I think that is where the mohawk comes from. Yeah, it's a disguise, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Why do you think he wants to kill um, Palpatine then? Because... Uh, Palpatine? You know, Palpatine, <laughs> yes. Um, Senator and uh, Emperor. <laughs> because, of, because of all those younglings, he's, he's going to you know make Anakin slaughter. <laughs> okay. Why do you think he wanted to kill the um, presidential wannabe? Betsy, uh, yes, yeah. He wants he wants to reconnect with Betsy. Gets her focus out of the way. He reconnects with Betsy. What do you think? So I thought. No, I, I think it's because he wants to tear down everything that Betsy's yeah. working towards. I suppose I'm just yeah. taking the psychopath answer. I am. So um... <laughs> <That's> worrying. <laughs> well, so talking about psychopaths, things obviously come to a head. He ends up getting rumbled and and gets chased away from uh, you know, the the Palatine rally, which then leads you know he's he's got this bloodlust he needs to satisfy now. So he then goes and confronts Sport, which leads to Taxi Driver's infamous massacre. Now this whole scene, the colour in it was considerably toned down and diffused in order to satisfy the concerns of the MPAA regarding the insane levels of violence in this one scene alone. And that top-down shot at the end, which is just looking down in you know on the carnage, that, that required them to remove the ceiling in order to build a camera track. The shot took months to prep, and then when it came to shooting, because of the limitations placed on Jodie Foster's working day, given the fact that she is you know, only 12 years old. They only had 20 minutes to shoot that scene on that particular day. To me, it's like a horror film. It's like grindhouse cinema. And then, yeah, the the music amplifies the intensity of it all. Absolutely. It's horror, isn't it? And from the very first moment when we see the taxi coming out of the smoke, I mean, it, it is a horror film, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And the moment that guy gets his hand obliterated, you know that it's going south very quickly mm-hmm. and very nastily. Because at the end of the day, don't forget, Travis Bickle gets shot three times, is it? Hey, he three gets shot in the shoulder, there. in the throat. Maybe... Or is it twice? Perhaps? I think it's just twice, yeah. I think Sport, yeah, but... Sport shoots him in the shoulder, does he? No, uh, yes, no yeah. in the neck. Or Sport yes, shoots him in the neck, neck and, and then... then yeah. yeah. It truly is like watching the, the, a video nasty, then, isn't it? it but it's, um, like, it's like the, the the early films of Peter Jackson, isn't it? Like uh, a know, brain dead, like and, bad, uh, taste bad taste and brain dead. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like it's it's like what, what was the what was the phrase you used earlier, Steve? Go galore, go galore. The, the, the overhead the overhead shot. De Palma's a massive fan of that because Hitchcock used to do it, didn't he? Yeah. Well, he, he did it in films. Frenzy, which was around the same time. Was it when was Frenzy made? Frenzy was 70, uh, 76. Is that his last one or? His... I think it wasn't his um, family. Family, family Ties plot. Family was plot was his last one. Yeah. So Frenzy's but probably Frenzy was... maybe seventy four, seventy five. And that the last shot of that is you know the camera going down the corridor with uh, the blood on the walls and stuff yeah. like that, wasn't it? That was seventy two yeah. frenzy. Oh right, seventy two. It's horror. It's it's grindhouse. It's 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 the real real the brothel is you, you want to wash yourself just from watching the screen. Everything is filthy, everything is dirty, and you've got these people covered in this sticky red blood mm. and Iris is the only one who who, who isn't arguably. Mm. Yeah. 
but it's 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 horrific. This is Travis's statement to the world, isn't it? This is Travis, the avenging angel. Ah, but this is, is Tra- he though? Because well, if he was well, trying to save uh, Jodie Foster's character, right? If he was really trying to save her, he would not have tried to commit suicide in front of her, which is what he tried to do. He didn't well, take her out. He didn't take us, you know, and uh, and then made sure she was safe. As soon as he finished killing everybody, he put the gun to his head right in front of her and he tried to commit suicide in front of her. That, to yeah. me, doesn't mean that he was trying to save her at all. No, but then is that down to the fractured psyche thinking that he can just waltz into this building, he's got X amount of bullets, he's going to kill this person, this person, and anybody else who's in the way. And I think, Steve, then, if, you, if you go back to the, the diner scene between uh, Travis and Iris, you could see clearly he wants to save her. He's, he's trying to convince her to leave this life. Yes, yes, yes. Because I think he's just horrified. You know, he's he's got his own very strict, narrow, blinkered, moral sort of view of the world. And because she operates outside of that, he just wants to bring her back into what he sees as like a decent, normal life for a girl her age, quite rightly. But I think at the end, maybe because he's you know he's been shot in the neck, he's been shot in the shoulder, he maybe he's just thinking, oh, the cops are going to come soon, and you know they're probably going to finish me off, so I'm just going to go out on my own terms. Maybe, maybe, and you know, um, perhaps he thinks that he's done all that he needs to do, and he's not thinking of her from anymore. Perhaps he's just think, thinking, that's it. You know, mm-hmm. I've drawn a line now. He's not thinking of the consequences of if he did blow his brains out in front of her, how it would affect her. He but, does, but, though, when he's he, when he does put his finger to his head, and he, you know, he replicates three shots of the three people that he did uh, kill, didn't he? So, uh, yeah. does that does that mean that he wants to, you know, he wants to pay somehow for what he's done? It's fascinating. You knew there was going to be an act of violence, and yes, the, the supermarket robbery, the failed robbery, is quite shocking. That is all shot with the the strip lighting, isn't it? You know, so everything's quite bright. But when you get to this sequence at the end in the brothel, and it's so dark, it's so dingy, yeah. and yet the violence is still hugely impactful. It is that crescendo that it's come to, isn't it? It's, it's like, for want of a poor word, it is a bloodbath, but. It's it's violence upon violence upon violence, and it's the fact that none of these none of these guys die easily. Nobody dies immediately. Much like in real life, you know, a gunshot is not going to immediately kill you like it does in you know a you know a fifties Howard Hawks western. You're not just going to clutch your stomach and fall to the floor. No, you are going to be writhing no. around no. in agony, much like we see with Mister Orange in the back of the car in uh, Reservoir Dogs when he's taking that gut shot. It's a it's a horrible way to go. What does Harvey Cattell say to him? You're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. Yeah. But he's not. Well, he knows he's already taken the gunshot. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, because even when, um, you know, Sport gets shot in the stomach, it's not, you know, he doesn't go down nice easily either. He falls down and you can hear the pain, Yeah. you know, reverberating through him. You know, he's shot, what, two, three times in the stomach. And yet he still comes back and fights. Yeah, yeah. And, and like the other guy, I guess, you know, his hand blown off, he keeps fighting and then... Yeah. It's yeah, an insane bloodbath, but obviously being a very visual scene that the film culminates in, let's talk about Michael Chapman's cinematography. Because god damn it, taxi driver on Blu-ray, you know, having had you know a four K restoration just looks better than I've ever seen it before. And it is a dirty, grimy film that it seeps you in that sort of you can almost smell the the, the, the stench from the sewers, but my god, what a beautiful looking film. Yeah, it's it's a dream, isn't it? It's it's almost psychedelic in some ways, especially some of the scenes at the beginning when he's driving through the city. It makes the city look beautiful and enticing, yet at the same time, you need a shower after watching it. It's like the opening to Manhattan. Yes, it, yeah, it, yeah. It's almost like a dark, 
dirty version of that love letter to the city that Woody Allen was giving us, but it's it's the seedier underbelly of it. But even like but that early on in the film, because we don't know where we're going on this journey, it is a lot more kind of classical film romanticism. Whereas later on in the film, there's that one shot where we see the, the camera starts at ground level and it just looks up at the tenement building. You just think that all of the, the seedy kind of things which are going on in each apartment and, and the fact that there's just hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of these buildings in New York with similar kind of things are going on. Some of the poor people who might be in Iris's position will not have a Travis Bickle to you know, rescue them from this situation. It just makes you think, God, it's just so oppressively, I don't even know how to describe it, but there's a beauty to the film with all of the endless shots of the taxi driving through these neon-soaked nighttime locations and, and you know, the, the bits with the, the fire hydrant spraying water all over the car. It's just so many scenes in this film are just beautiful in a, in a kind of unconventional way. Yeah, what you just said reminds me of, remember that film, it was Naked City. I think the one the lines oh, is... Oh, Jules um, Dassin? Yeah, yes. Yeah, there's, yeah. there's a thousand stories in the city and this is just one of them. Yeah. What you just said about, you know, when you're looking at the tenement buildings and you, all these things are happening... And none of them are nice. It really, really mm. captures that, doesn't it? Yeah, and it, it, there's a, you know, there's a suggestion that Taxi Driver could have been made in black and white, but no. you know, this was the 70s. They were moving away from black and white photography. Colour, even though in a lot of scenes it's quite muted, colour is used to brilliant effect in this film. I agree with everything you said as well, but I think if from, from a storytelling purpose, you were saying about the shots starting at ground level and going up the buildings to sort of show that basically Travis is the man on the street. He is ground level. He isn't in the upper echelons of society or mm-hmm. otherwise. And he's he, he literally is in the shit and the grime, isn't he? Yeah. He sees it firsthand. And so this is why I've been to New York. I know, Sky, you've been in New York. But the thing is, it's such an overwhelming place. Yes. I, and Sensory and, overload. And I, yeah, it's it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And yeah. the thing is, if 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 you're film buffs like we are, you walk around a corner and it's like holy shit. You walk around another corner, holy shit. Taxi driver literally does say, right, this is New York. It's not pleasant. It's not well. Then it's much better than it was. <laughs> I'm sure it is mm-hmm. much better than it was. But it literally it's showing you get a level, and you know that's the worst. Can be the worst of the worst. You know, you will have good people in amongst it. You will have bad people in amongst it. But the thing is, the city is so overwhelming that one man literally can't change Hmm. everything within that city because it's living, it's breathing, and it's a cauldron of everything mixing together, good and bad. This one man sees his one shot of redemption in amongst a swimming pool of shit, ultimately. (laughs) And the story is that, you know, he has his redemption, but does he? Does he have full well, let, let's, let's talk about the, the sort of, you know, the, the, the post-massacre ending to Taxi Driver then. You've got that final scene with Betty getting into Travis's cab after he's been declared a hero by the newspapers. He seems much calmer, more at ease. But still, Scorsese and De Niro give us these little hints that he's still bubbling under the surface. And that final nervous look in the rearview mirror, the the film ends with with a nice little reversed musical sting which was that was the final thing bernard herman did on film now scorsese ever. doesn't ever, ever. yeah he yeah i think he died the next day no yes he died yes, the next he was day recorded, um, yeah was it 23rd of december was then he died on Christ, uh, yeah. christmas eve wasn't it yeah. Yeah. scorsese doesn't wow. give us a, a he doesn't give us a comforting resolution but in many ways taxi driver has what i would call an ominously happy ending it's a happy ending but and that final reverse musical sting from Bernard Herrmann is just the thing that puts 
the, the, the cherry on top of the icing on the cake. Wow. Do you think that Betsy really got in the car, though? Or was that something that's part of his imagination? I, I, I'm not... This thing, I'm not saying that this is my the whole thing about the flowers and the conversation in the hallway. Um, you just sent us a picture. You're confusing me now. I've literally had the film on in the background. Ah, oh, right, okay. And literally, we mentioned in Bernard Herman, and the, the t- it's gone to the end titles, and it's the, uh, the the dedication at the end. Yeah, December 24th, 1975, yeah. 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 Jesus. Wow. Perfect timing. In which case, then, let's talk about <laughs> Bernard Herman's score. Because Scorsese always wanted Herman to do the score and was a fan of his scores for Hitchcock. It was his final score. He died the day after he finished recording it. Now talk about an incredible ending to an amazing career. You know, talk about ending your career on a high. The thing in me which which fired up this sort of which propelled Taxi Driver to the top of my list maybe about maybe about a year or so ago. It was probably around about the time that Neil and I did the Jaws commentary because once we got that out of the way and and that was probably my my number one most the, the film that I personally wanted to, to you know to talk about. Taxi Driver took his, his place straight away. Much of that was down to Steve, when you and I were preparing for our big Jerry Goldsmith episode with Stephen Simpson, as an offshoot of that, I just started listening to more film scores and, and was just binging them for you know for weeks on end. And one of the ones I listened to again for the umpteenth time was Bernard Herrmann's score for Taxi Driver. And soon as that opening track, you know, the opening to the film plays, I was immediately just filmed with this overwhelming need. I thought, my God, we have to do a Taxi Driver episode and we have to give it. I just have to put all of these things, get, get, get them sort of, out of my brain because I, I just got so much to say about it. The score, the score, it just blows my socks off. It is just unbelievable. I can't imagine the, I can't imagine the film without the score. I think it's worth noting though that the first film that Bernard Herrmann worked on as well was Citizen, Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane, yeah. What bookends? Oh, you can't get better than that, can you? But yeah, the music is so dreamy. It's so lush in some yeah. respects, and yet for all the, um, like I said. It's, it's almost romantic, but then it's just got this underscore tension right through it, mm-hmm. which I think that... It's, it's a very romantic score. It does, really yeah, but every swap, you've got this build-up of the, like the drums and the, uh, or, you know, the percussion, which seems to take away the romanticism yeah. and say that there's, there's some violence here. You know I mean, yeah. it's not a love affair. It is a domination. It's got a lot of range. But, yeah. you know, you've got that sort of um, almost Gershwin-esque opening track and then you've you've got the one thank god for the rain that is just so placid and mellow and and oh my god it's just it's perfect it's a perfect perfect film score i love this soundtrack i've got to be honest with you Mm -hmm. what i love about it and steve you use the word dreamy i love the rosiness as well along with the dreaminess because because we don't know the the state of mind with Travis, we, everything is through his his POV almost. Then, isn't it? It's like going back to you talking to me. You know, we are mm. seeing what Travis is seeing, isn't it? When he's talking to himself in the mirror, and yet when we start the film and the, and the build up and everything, and everything's got this dreamy quality to begin with, and the, the, the and the, the the soundtrack is jazz ultimately, isn't it? It's it's a jazz soundtrack, like you say, the the the, the, the very harsh drums kicking in at those pivotal moments. And, oh yeah, yeah. And, and 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 yet there's nods to modern pop music as it was then. Um, the, the American bandstand sequence being yeah. the most obvious. Yeah. As uh, Jackson Brown, by the way, the song is. It's not like a, like Predator, where the soundtrack is propulsion, propulsion, propulsion. Yeah. And and it, and it hasn't got that standalone, you know, sequence with that that theme that you like Jaws, for example. It's just atmospheric free flow accompaniment to. 
absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And and the thing is, it's, it's it does set the stall from the from the from the title sequence onwards. You know, you've got this almost you know up tempo, then you got like a, a, a lull, and then it's up tempo again. And it's it's Travis's mind, isn't it? It's fractured. It's up and down, up yeah. and down. But it's, yeah. it's 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 a phenomenal score. Herman was he was nominated for Academy Awards for both Taxi Driver and his score for Brian De Palma's Obsession the same year, but he won for neither score. He probably cancelled himself out. Yeah, which tends yeah. to happen. But my God, they could have at least given him the Oscar for best score for this because it's apart from being a perfect film score, it's it's, it's Bernard Herman. He died by the time the Academy Awards rolled around. It would have been a posthumous Oscar. But come yeah. on, Academy, again, an example of the, the Academy just not getting it right. Let's not get into that conversation. Let's not, yeah, no, that's a conversation for another time, which we've already had several times already. <laughs> so, guys, as we kind of wrap things up on Taxi Driver now, what are your final thoughts of this landmark film? And dare I say it, now that guys, you've had you've you've recently reappraised Taxi Driver, and we've discussed it tonight in depth, has it moved up your ranking of your favourite Martin Scorsese films? Ooh. I hadn't seen it for quite a while. You know, I mean, I am a fanatic when it comes to Scorsese. However, sometimes when you haven't seen a film for a long time, you forget about its greatness. I'm so glad I, uh, you know, I, I might not have watched it again for a couple of years if not for this um, podcast. So I am so glad that I watched it again and I, I can bask in its its brilliance once more. I'm not going to do a top 10. I, I refuse to do it last time. I, I just can't. No, that's that's fair enough, Steve. That's fair enough. Uh, you, I think you've made no secret of the fact that you just like me and like Leighton. You just you're completely in awe of this film. Yes, I did give my top five. It's in my top five. I don't think it's moved. However, the film has such an impact when you watch it. It's so hard to dismiss. It's one thing we sort of have mentioned, right? Is that the Vietnam War and when films were made about the Vietnam War. This must be one of the very earliest films referencing the Vietnam War. We would have Apocalypse Now and we would have a John Voight one coming home. Yeah, coming home, And yeah. various others along along the way. You know, we, we get to Platoon, Born the Fourth of July and all of those films. But Taxi Driver must be one of the, the earliest to sort of oh, God, make yeah. reference of the impact on of the Vietnam War on its veterans. It highlights that once you're out the army... At that time, you was basically you were kicked out the door, and that was that. Go back into society. Thank you for your service. Carry on with whatever you can do within life. Well, t- technically, like in the Vietnam War, it ended on the thirtieth of April, nineteen seventy-five. So there we are. A, a year before then, this film came out, or during the shooting of the film, during certainly the preparation. The, the film would have been in some sort of stage during, you know, whilst the, the Vietnam War was still ongoing. But then th- think of the numbers churned, uh, in, in, and I, I don't mean this disrespectfully, but the number of bodies churned going out there and coming back and doing their bit for their country. Yeah. And the impact upon American society that that had. We all recognise, as we said earlier, the signs of PTSD. Well, the deer hunter is another one then, right? The deer hunter is showing the impact the war has upon people who, who work in log mills and steel mm. mills and you know whatever you know work in the post office and suddenly sent away to a foreign land to fight somebody they don't understand etc right 
this must be one of the very earliest Vietnam films or mention of Vietnam. You know, the, people must have been aware that this was happening and yet was sort of powerless to do anything about it. And it shows basically, rightly or wrongly, how basically you do your bit. You come, If you're lucky enough to come back, you basically, thank you very much, off you go. Yeah, yeah. There's no sort of aftercare then, for yeah, for, yeah, yeah. for sure. want of a better word. Yeah, that was a massively brave decision by Paul Schrader and Martin Scorsese and De Niro, mm. ultimately to you know to make that film as and tell that story. And ultimately, they they, they did reap rewards because they won the the Cannes Film Festival, didn't it? The, mm-hmm. the, the Palm Door. Won the Palm Door that year. It was Oscar nominated thereafter, wasn't it? For it was released in early February of 1976. It went on to earn four Academy Award nominations, Best Picture, Best Actor for De Niro, Best Supporting Actress for Jodie Foster, and obviously, as we've said, Best Original Score for Bernard Herrmann. It didn't win any. And Scorsese wasn't nominated as director. No, it's just... I will never understand that. Nominated a film for Best Picture, but not the director of that yeah. film. Especially a film yeah. like this where it's not a straightforward story or, you know... This is a director's vision. Absolutely. Then then again, can sort of picks out the outsider and has done it repeatedly, isn't it, over the years. Hollywood isn't going to embrace this film, but we will. And the classic, one of the ones that sort of stands out to me is Pulp Fiction won it. And come the Oscar time, a certain other film won mm-hmm. all of the Oscars. But there we are. <laughs> so there you go, guys. We've finally done Taxi Driver. It's a film that we, we, we've certainly, you know, you and I, Leighton, have talked about it face-to-face, mm. and Steve, is it, you, know, you and me have had endless discussions about Scorsese. But yeah, it, you know, for me, it's just one of my all-time favourite films. It's just absolute perfection. I wouldn't change a single frame in it. Watching it again recently for this episode has just brought up all manner of different things which I've never even considered. I'm watching it from you know, a, a different perspective in my own life now. And you know, it's like Joe Dante says, films don't change, we change. And that is the beauty of film, the fact that you can just go back and watch a film 10, 20 years after you last saw it and just get maybe not an overwhelmingly different, but certainly a, a, a different perspective and a, and a different experience watching a film. So there, that was it. That was our final thoughts and analysis of one of the all-time great examples of American cinema. Uh, we really do hope you enjoyed the episode. Please hit us all up you know, if you've got anything to say about some of the you know, theories we put across tonight and, and our analysis of the film. Thank you again, Leighton, for joining us. We, you know, we hope to have you back on soon. Hopefully this discussing you know, Scorsese films and other similar films will become a, you know, a regular thing for us. Gents, how can people get hold of you on social media if they want to talk to you about film, television or anything else? Uh, I'm at, at late winst on Twitter. That's about it, to be honest with you. Yeah, same for me as best places uh, on Twitter, and it's um, at Welsh Bluesman. And you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at Sky Movies, and you can find all of the Film 89 team at Film 89 UK on Twitter and Facebook. And please check out the website, film89.co.uk. If you want to hit us up the old-fashioned way, send us a good old email, admin at Film 89 UK. And if you are enjoying the podcast, which we hope you are, please hit that subscribe button if you haven't already, and we would be really grateful if you could also take the time to leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts. And Steve, if all goes to plan, you and I will be joining, or oh, we'll be joined by two former guest hosts to talk about another classic film which we've mentioned a few times tonight very soon but for now it just remains for us to remind you all to stay safe be as happy as you can be in this increasingly crazy world we live in and as always you stay classy